0: This is the Coogee Base Special, a crisis management podcast brought to you by Trebuchet Pivot. My name is Garth Callender and each episode I'm going to take you on a journey to explore crises from Australia and around the globe. We're going to unpack them a little to understand what triggered them, what the impact has been, not just for the organisation, but often the industry sector and beyond. And most importantly, we're going to look at what lessons we can learn from them. Thanks for joining us. In our first episode, I'm joined by my dear friend Marley Walchuk. Together we look at the 1997 crisis that consumed the iconic Australian biscuit manufacturer Arnott's. We hope you enjoy hearing of the lessons from this successfully managed yet very expensive crisis caused by product tampering and attempted extortion. We're, uh, we're pushing the bounds of technology here and running this po- podcast from opposite ends of the globe. Um, so. Right. Ma- Marley, why don't you say where you are?
1: I'm in Vancouver, Canada.
0: So uh, so, so, you're in a log cabin in a forest in Vancouver with b- bears, I'd imagine. Um, <laughs> <that's> except- <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm sitting on a beach surrounded by palm trees on the Gold Coast in Australia. No, that's,
1: not, that's not that far from the truth, actually, Garth. <laughs> there are palm trees
0: out the window. It's true. It
1: okay, so Garth, tell me what you consider a crisis to be
0: any event that can adversely affect an organization's so their people their assets reputation market share their stability as organization be it financial or otherwise and even their longer term viability as an organization and often it is what's going to hit the front page of the australian or the the sydney morning herald or the (laughs) vancouver tribune i don't know
1: we wanted to talk about um, product tampering, but why? What? what is the, the purpose of this particular subject uh, in relationship to what you do?
0: So product tampering is a really interesting one from a crisis management perspective, because there's always so much learning that you can bring from how a uh, product tampering incident, uh, and there's usually the extortion attempt associated with it, how that is handled. Um, and we'll, we'll raise them in, in in other podcasts, some of the other really spicy sort of product tampering and extortion incidents that have been out there. And the, the two which have come to mind and I've I've just finished doing a bit of work on are um, the Pepsi-Cola uh, syringe in the cans of Diet Pepsi uh, incident mm-hmm. and how Pepsi um, really aggressively handled that one. Uh, and the other one, which is um, quite grisly, which is the, uh, again, it's another US-based one, but the uh, the human finger found in the tub of Wendy's chili. Um, so... <laughs> Grizzly story but a, again a really interesting one to see how from a f- from a corporate standpoint they they managed uh, or or mismanaged that that crisis um and, and i guess it's probably worth also talking about that that product tampering if you go right back to the early 80s 1982 when seven people were killed in the the Tylenol incident with um uh, poison put in Tylenol capsules um on 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 shelves in chemists and uh and yeah tragically killed seven people but that that incident alone sort of had a a global impact on the way that we um we expect pharmaceuticals and more broadly products to be sold to us so Mm. you know before that there was no anti-tamper stickers on on any drugs there was no anti-tamper um uh child proof yeah no, none of so that so are,
1: that's true i remember yeah
0: I remember the way exactly. it played out was somebody walked into a chemist pin, pinched a couple of bottles walked out and um opened the capsules emptied the contents filled it with cyanide closed the capsules closed the bottle put it back on the shelf and it looked exactly the same as any other bottle whereas today there's no way that you do that you, and if you picked up a bottle and worked out that the that the the childproof um uh, bit of plastic on it has broken you yep. you'd you'd let somebody know probably yes.
1: um, yeah that was a huge one i do remember that wow yeah, yeah. yeah. now yeah. and we discussed earlier about the um a, a monte carlo incident and what now we, yeah. i don't have monte carlos here at my grocery store so explain what that is
0: yeah so they they're an iconic australian biscuit so they're um i guess they're they're kind of a light short two two fairly light shortbread biscuits um with a uh, marshmallow filling with a a, a kind of red coloured glaze around it as well. They're pretty good, pretty mm, good, that's delicious. <laughs> yeah, um, but they come up because really, the there was an extortion attempt uh, in nineteen ninety seven, and it it was the the greatest product tampering incident that that, that Australia faced um, uh, until just what late last year with the but sorry the the needles in the strawberries uh, incident yes. and you know if you want to talk about getting getting bang for your buck as an extortionist you know that this uh you know a an individual with a with a packet of needles brought the Australian strawberry industry to its knees um w- within about a month or so and costs um cost Astro- the Australian industry tens of millions of dollars um, just yeah just from the threat of of needles and strawberries you know not even life-threatening um just the threat of yes. a, a prick injury um the, it's the idea of having you know biting into something and and finding something in there which is going to cause you pain which really turned the, the population off um but that again that's a, probably a a subject for a, for another discussion um, yeah, but it's sure a really it's interesting good. one but prior to wow. that what are what, what Arnott's Biscuits, so the makers of, of the Monte Carlo faced, um, really that was, that was the first really big one and it's actually used still today in sort of MBA subjects where they talk about crisis management um, as a case study because it was just it was actually handled really well um, ah. so, you know, they talk about crisis being, um, being like a mugging they're always going to hurt, it's just how much they hurt Arnott's Biscuits minimised the hurt through the way they, they handled it. But the background to this was that so several packets of biscuits were sent around the east coast of, of Australia, so New South Wales and Queensland in particular, uh, to, to individuals and to corporations uh, with demand letters. When the biscuits were tested, they had enough poison in them to, to kill a, a small child. The demand letters said that, that unless certain um, conditions were met, further biscuits would be would be released onto supermarket shelves. It was a really interesting one. So the the demands were all about uh, the release of a convicted murderer, a guy named um, Ronald Henry Thomas. Not only his release, but also demanding that some of the police officers involved take lie detector tests around specific aspects of uh, the case and evidence they presented. So obviously somebody was interested in firstly getting this person out but also having them... Shown that, that they were wrongly wrongly convicted through false evidence or poorly handled case, or
1: and they picked a cookie company as the as the method as a vehicle yeah. for this. You know, it's it's a very very strange connection. Was there any reason? would they ever say why they picked arnett's Is just because it was such a big company, or
0: no? And I'll, I'll talk about um I'll talk about how it how it played out sort of from a from a policing side um a, as we go on but there's never been a conviction so nobody's actually been able to get get answers to why why biscuits were, were targeted yeah you know it makes sense it's a fast-moving consumer good um it's uh
1: and was that Arnott's initial reaction was just to try and get the cookies off the shelves i, I would assume that would be the first thing
0: well no so they so they were really interesting so they had a bloke um come in who's a who's a bit of a legend um in australian corporate circles particularly around the way he handled this crisis so he'd arnott's were in the middle of a quite a large company restructure um and and he'd come in as with uh, most of the executive and upper management, they they'd been in their roles for less than a year. A lot of the organisation. So this chap's name's Chris Roberts, and he he's um he still sits on boards in Australia. Like I said, he's a bit he's a bit of a legend for the way he he handled this mm. in particular. Um, and I guess adding to the lemma as well, because they'd had a complete management reshuffle, um, they didn't have they did have a product recall plan but they didn't have a crisis management plan or at least not one specifically dealing with an extortion attempt. They were kind of making it up as they, they went along with, with with this incident. So what they initially did was stood up a crisis management team and they stood it up being chaired by a senior executive who had the ear of, of Chris Roberts, so the managing director. So he had the ability to make decisions uh, and he would speak to to Chris, so this this senior executive running the crisis management team would speak to the managing director, anything up to three times a day, and he would gain approval for the recommendations that the crisis management team had had made during their their discussions. So what they what they did initially, and I think this is really what what saved them, what set them apart, the the pivotal thing for them in in being able to fix this problem was they came together and they set the company's strategic objectives for being able to resolve this problem. So they came up with four, um, I think they call them company principles, but they're really strategic objectives for guiding their response to this incident. So one was ensuring they they were ensure safety of consumers. Two, they would protect the value of the Arnott's trademark and reputation. Three, protect the interests of their shareholders. And four, stop the threat. And they said right we will focus all our resources and energy to achieving those four strategic objectives with with that in mind they sort of set three key work areas which they were going to work to which was um validating the threat understanding what their regulatory requirements were and understanding what recall options they had
1: right
0: in setting those priorities and getting those areas of work established, they retained control of handling the crisis throughout. And that actually proved extremely important uh, because the government turned around and said, well, we're not going to meet the demands of the extortionist. We're not going to release this guy and we're not going to test the police officers. So yeah, kind of I mean, saying, Arnott, <laughs> right. You, <you're>,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> and that's completely understandable from a government side. But in other ways, it was like, right, so Arnott, you're on your own with this one.
1: Yeah.
0: So they very quickly made the decision to withdraw um, not just Monte Carlo's, but all 300 varieties uh, of their biscuits from over 30,000 retailers across Queensland and New South Wales. Yeah. So enormous uh, recall and destruction of extensive amounts of, of produce. So, and that was also matched with a large scale publicity campaign. So it included, Publishing in newspapers the reason for the recall. And really interestingly, they also published the extortionist demands. And they did this in a full-page newspaper advertisement. Mm. Again, you know, that, that messaging actually endeared them to the public and yes. showed, showed Arnitz as the victim here. Um, so right. they were being transparent. They were getting the public on side. Um, and so retaining that, that, um, that customer base. And that was really the first phase of, of what they did. So that initial assessment, setting the priorities, and then the recall. Then they went into a, a what they called managing the market in exile. So they weren't in the market. So they had all their products withdrawn from the shelves, and they went about, okay, so how do we make sure when our products get back on the shelves that they're going to sell? And again, that was all about just maintaining transparency, ongoing com- um, communications through the through the media, and this is before social media, so this is not Facebook pages or company websites or anything like that. This is working oh. through the media to reassure the public of what they were doing and why they were doing it. Uh, and then the police eventually provided Arnott's with information that they believed that the extortion threat had ended. This information, with consumer feedback, so they'd set up phone. Hotlines, and they were doing polls of consumer sentiment, and the the customer feedback they had indicated that they had the credibility, and they had consumer trust. So that remained high because of that ongoing transparency in communications. And then they made the decision to return the stock to to the shelves following eleven days from the from the recall. They restocked shelves, and again a lot of work getting supermarkets back on side. Because uh, yeah. the supermarkets were the end, of, you know, at the end result, the one's going to make make money or lose money from from selling the products or having the stock sit on shelves not selling. That's right. Um, so they had to confirm to them that the stock was going to sell and that it was going to be safe and to the best of their knowledge, this was not going to be a recurring thing.
1: It was the only way that they were able to assure the public and and the and the, the salespeople in the stores was just by saying that the police. Have kind of assured us that this person is not, you know, in the like. How did how did they know for sure?
0: They found they got DNA evidence on a postage stamp from oh, one of the uh, from from one of the packets of biscuits, the parcel that, that went with it, and it actually identified the seventy six year old mother of Ronald Henry Thomas. So, oh, oh. mum looking after a boy trying to trying to get him out of prison through an extortion attempt. Um, oh my gosh. However, in 2002, as the, the trial was taking place, that evidence was dismissed. Um, I, don't, I don't quite understand exactly. The forensic um, biologists withdrew that evidence saying they weren't sure whether that DNA link was correct. Uh, either way, it's never been prosecuted, but the fingers all pointed squarely at, at uh, this chap's mother. Okay, then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and, and I, I'd imagine behind the scenes there was that ongoing um, dialogue between police and Arnott's to right. understand what they knew about the extortion attempt and the likelihood of that recurring, the fact that they'd identified somebody who was likely the the, the perpetrator.
1: Oh, yeah. So I was going to say, so they got everything back on the shelves. They were obviously able to convince the stores to take them back. Did they put all of the brands back?
0: They did at at an estimated cost of about $10 million. So this was not a cheap activity. And that was just the withdrawal of products, the destruction of products, and the restocking of shelves. However, the entire crisis is estimated to have lost Arnott's around um, more more than double that. So $22 22 Australian dollars in late 1990s time. Um, so significantly more than that these yeah. days. So and that was all around the advertising, the public relations, um, the implementation of those consumer monitoring tools, loss production, things like that. So extremely expensive, but nevertheless, it, it, it is it is praised and Chris Roberts is revered, and, and that is the benchmark for for good handling. Of a product recall and extortion uh, attempt in in Australia today it cost cost to them 22 up. million. But but to be honest, that if it's it had been poorly it. handled, that that could have bankrupted uh, Arnotts. You know, they they could have gone under if this had been a long drawn out thing. If they'd lost uh, consumer support, um, if if some way they'd been seen to mishandle this, mm-hmm. um, and we we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, in later podcasts, we'll talk about ones where that that was true. And
1: right, so so just, sorry. Just to recap, what do you believe they got right? What what would you say are the main points of what they did correctly to gain back all of this, you know, trust and and money?
0: I think the key thing is that they set those strategic priorities early, uh, and they use them to focus all their efforts. So, in these sort of situations, it's really easy. To start delving into the tactical, we need you know need to find the extortionists. And again, uh just go. When we talk about the Wendy's one, this will get drawn out a lot. But Wendy's, right. when the finger was found in the chili, they went chasing the finger. They didn't. Yeah. They they didn't set strategic priorities, and they didn't. And they definitely didn't adhere to any strategic priorities. And instead, they they went down that that myopic path of trying to find out where the finger came from. So Mm. Arnott's could have had that if they hadn't set those strategic priorities and just go through them again because they're they're really clever. Mm. What have I done with them? So ensuring the safety of consumers, number one. Number two, protect the value of the Arnott's trademark and reputation. Number three, protect the interests of shareholders. So maintain the the value of the organisation as best as possible. And number four, stop the threat they're they're very high level they're very but that focuses everyone's activity so so i think that so setting those strategic priorities is foremost in my mind as as the, the thing they got right early and that really set set the course for them recovering from this i think having st- senior leadership engaged um and not just engaged in this, but intimately involved in the process throughout. So Chris Roberts was getting briefed at least once a day from the senior executive who was running his his crisis management team. You know, these weren't middle management guys. This is a hard hitter, one of his senior leaders in the organisation who he trusts and who has his ear um, at any time. They're making recommendations which which he would consider and and agree to. Um, on a daily basis, so I think that's extremely important here. They remained authentic and transparent throughout the process, so they spent a lot of money on making sure that the public remained informed. And I do love that bit about you know they sent out the extortionists' letter, so so yeah. everyone could see what they what they were facing, and it kind of brought them on the brought the, the general public on the journey with them and saw them as just as much victims, victims when it was occurring and heroes when it was fixed.
1: So I think that's
0: that's really that money that they spent on that that public relations and the consumer monitoring very well very well spent dollars.
1: Now so this is a product tampering incident mm. and um because this of course we're talking about crisis management um is is this particular process that they went through relevant to other areas of you know other industry sectors
0: I think so, and I I think having that uh, deliberate, methodical process. And I think any organisation who has that process, particularly if they if they have a well-drilled process, if they have a team that understands their role during a crisis, if they have the organisational leadership fully supportive of that crisis management process, that it's the best way for preparing to make decisions to save your organisation when when the the unknown occurs. So it's, I, I deal with a lot of organisations who talk about, oh, we need a flowchart to get us out of this problem. You know, if this happens, we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do this. If this doesn't happen, we'll do this. At the end of the day, sometimes that's, that's helpful, but that's almost a management function. But it, it's really those unforeseen incidents. You know, they talk about black swans, which is a term I don't like particularly that much, but the unknown occurring. So when something which you haven't envisaged um, you know, it lands you on the front page of the Vancouver Sun. Um it's it's having a having a process and a team which know what they're doing, um, which means you can analyze the situation appropriately, you can you can foresee what might might occur, you know, the more likely thing that's going to occur, but also what's the worst thing that's gonna occur. And then you can come up with those strategic objectives around it and then an action plan for how you are going to move forward to get yourself out of the um that that particular crisis
1: and like you said before it's i it can either it can make or break you know Absolutely. not have stuff in in i mean easily uh Arnott's could have gone under from this yeah you know just with with a few small missteps you know it it could have all been over so it, is, it was incredibly important well i love this story that was awesome thank you good, good. now what are we going to be talking about next
0: so there's there's a few and look i i said um you know, you can look at some of the more lighthearted ones, but actually, the one we'll probably tackle next is is a really sad one, and it's um, it's it's actually still pretty raw for a lot of people, particularly in in where I am now on the Gold Coast, which is the tragic um, Dreamworld Thunder Rapid ride fatalities. So it's, yeah. um, I, I think it's a really important one to raise because there is just so much to learn from this. Um, tragically, loss of life, and also tragically, what senior management and the boards of dreamworld and, and and their parent company ardent leisure did did wrong even drilling right back to the beginning you know the the risk assessments that were made and you know in in my mind I, i'm sure there would have been a risk register in in uh, the executive office in in dreamworld and at the top of that would have been multiple fatalities from a ride malfunction probably in red at the top However, they were caught seemingly completely unprepared for that that incident. So again, I think there's some really important lessons that uh, that come out of that. We'll delve into uh, a few more product tampering incidents, like I, I talk, talked about Pepsi and Wendy's, which are interesting, a um, little bit ghoulish with the with the Wendy's one. But again, I th- I just think it's just such a good one to uh, to draw some lessons out of, and uh, and the one I'm most looking forward to, which is one on the fashion industry, actually. Oh, um, yeah, so there's been some really interesting ones um, that have hit Dolce & Gabbana and Victoria's C- Secrets recently. And a lot of them to have been through their own doings. Dolce & Gabbana um, mm-hmm. saying some nasty stuff on social media and uh, Victoria's Secret uh, doing, doing similar and losing a large slab of their consumer base uh, and having people boycott their brand because of the the messaging the organisation has put out and failed to do anything more about, I think uh, I think they'll be they'll be quite quite interesting. Fantastic. I can't wait. Well, Marley, thank you so much for for being involved in this um, sure. I, I, pr- I, I probably just have to say if people want to learn more about this, please have a look at our website. We keep um regular updates on current and fairly topical crises um australia but also around the globe so it's um www.trevishapivot.com and you can sign up to our websites and if there's anything you want to get in touch with in touch with us about there is a link to get in touch with us or email us at information at wonderful
1: thank you garth appreciate it
0: all right well look forward to talking to you next time
1: let's do it